Good afternoon, Quaker Nation, and welcome back to our latest episode of The Pod. I'm Nikki Belgrad, and as always, joining me today is my good friend Joey Pyatt. We decided on this fine Sunday afternoon that we would be recording our final episode of the semester. And in this behemoth of a podcast, we're going to be- begin with our usual pen roundup as fall sports have finally ended and winter sports are fully underway. And our first segment is then going to be a short feature on the NBA, reflecting on some of our initial predictions and our over-unders at the outset of the season. And now, uh, next, we're going to dive into the NFL, giving our analysis and predictions heading into the final weeks of the season. And of course, playoff football, which is my favorite time of the year. And lastly, we're going to be welcoming, welcoming soon-to-be sports editor Esther Lim and sports associate Catherine Shu, who are joining us on a special episode of this podcast to discuss Formula One. Both Joey and I are newcomers to the sport, so if you know absolutely nothing about F1, don't worry about it, because neither do we. So without further ado, let's jump right into things, Quaker Nation. All right, kicking things off today, we're going to start with our pen roundup. There's been a lot going on, especially with the winter sports, and Nikki's going to kick us off with some action for our men's and women's squash teams, which are both doing very well to start the season. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of negatives going around about pen athletics, but uh, you know, men's squash and women's squash is one of the greatest things about our school right now. Uh, let's start with the men's. You can basically say nothing bad about this team. They entered the season uh, nationally ranked number one. They're still nationally ranked number one. They've only dropped two matches throughout nine matches. They're undefeated. Um, in great news, Josh Bargava, one of the program veterans, now has 50 career wins. He's the first men's squash player to do that. Um, they're a bit on a on a bit of a winter hiatus right now. Um, they don't play until January 12th, like many of our other winter teams at the moment. But honestly, I don't think anything is stopping this team right now. I think they're destined for a CSA playoff berth. We're probably going to see them in the championship against some of the cream of the crop, the Ivy League. But um, they're absolutely dominating everyone that they play. And uh, yeah, I just think you can expect this team to keep winning. So. On the women's side, they're also very well uh, well positioned in the Ivy League. Um, similar to the men's team, they don't begin play again until January fifteenth. But they're currently six and two, and this is for squash. It's a little bit different than some of our fall sports, where we see a lot of the schedule kind of like dominated by Ivy League play. For squash, we're only going to see one match per Ivy League opponent, meaning playing against teams like Harvard, uh, who won uh, the championship a couple years ago before uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic who's now 3-0 on the year. Um, they're going to be a scary opponent for sure, and so men or women's squash is, is going to have to pay attention to the, the uh, Harvard and other teams like Dartmouth on their schedule. Um, basically, their only two losses are 5-4, very close uh, games against top 10 teams. So we're going to see women's squash also in the CSA playoffs, most likely. It's just going to be a question of they can pull out those close victories against top 10 opponents like Harvard, like Dartmouth, etc. Yeah, and now also the wrestling team also off to a strong start. So Nikki's going to keep... Uh, let us know what we don't need about wrestling. Yeah. Um, similarly, the wrestling team, a little bit sparse in action so far. They started off with a great performance at the Keystone Classic hosted here at UPenn. They placed first in the meet among eight teams, um, and they followed up that performance with a very, very close loss to the number two team in the nation, Penn State. Um, you know, they barely lost this 20 to 16. I think if you're competing against the cream of the crop in wrestling like Penn State, you're going to be competing at the end of the season. Like I said, we've only seen a couple performances so far. But, um, you know, similar to our other winter sports, they're on a bit of hiatus right now. They're going to be returning to action just after Christmas. December 29th and 30th, they're going to be competing at the Midlands Championships. So definitely stay tuned to watch how they're performing then. And only their third performance this season. 
Yeah, and it's kind of encouraging to see those squash teams and wrestling not just performing and having good records, but against good teams like the Kimmer Crop, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really, no question marks for these teams yet, other than you know, can they when the, when they're playing these big games in the year, you know, win the championship versus just have a really strong season? No, yeah, absolutely. I think the both squash teams and definitely the wrestling are teams to look out for. You know, in January and February once we get to the postseason. Yeah. Now going over to some teams that have struggled a little bit to get some momentum starting the season. Um, we have men's and women's basketball. Both right now have losing records. The men's team sits at three and ten. The women's team at four and seven. And both are actually on a six-game losing streak right now. So they're both kind of in a rut. Um, kind of just starting with the women. Uh, obviously, the kind of big storyline was the suspensions, the four-game suspensions that were levied against all of their upperclassmen players, um, and those are spread out over their first eight games. And at first, it didn't look like they were really going to impact the team much. It looked like Coach McLaughlin kind of had his rotation figured out. Uh, but in some of those games, especially against like LaSalle. Um, but now we saw that there was kind of some issues with the rotation. It, was, it looked like he wasn't quite sure exactly who was going to fit in where. Um, they were really missing some key players like Kayla Padilla. Um, Padilla has been one of the be- biggest bright spots on the team. She is, it has multiple 30-point games. Um, I think she's at five 20-plus point games this season. She's she scoring the ball just like she knows how to do. The big question mark for them is who's going to be their second scorer. They really don't have a consistent second score. It looks like it would be Jordan Obi early in the season, um, but she's been contained in a couple of games, so they really haven't had anyone step up and really solidifying that number two spot. So I think that's their big question mark is just figuring out their rotation and, and trying to get something going. Because, I mean, this team, I mean, with the suspensions, they really didn't work together and figure things out yet. So even though they're 11 games in the season, I mean, this is a team that's still trying to figure things out. And, they play one more game non-conference against Morgan State, um, and, and if they can win that one, there'll be some nice momentum before they, they start their Ivy play on January 2nd against Brown. And then the men, too, have also kind of been shorthanded. Uh, a lot of injuries, especially in their front court. Uh, Nick Spinoso and Max Lorca-Lord are both kind of nursing injuries, so they've been kind of shorthanded in the front court, and you really saw that against Villanova when they played them. Villanova, you know, a team that has a lot of size on a team like Penn and, and, and plays very tough. It was hard for Penn to kind of keep up. Now, what I'll say about Penn is they have been really competitive in these games. Um, Aside from a few games that look maybe more like blowouts, like the season over against Florida State, Penn has played pretty well considering the strength of their schedule. And at three and ten, they might be one of the best three and ten teams in the nation um, because this is a team that definitely is still in the thick of Ivy play. I mean, obviously a big, big five titles out of question, but Ivy plays all that matters for getting to the tournament for this team. And so I think that if Penn can take care of business in the Ivy League, figure things out, maybe get a little bit healthier uh, in the front court, and really have some of their guys step up in the in the back court, because we've seen guys like Clark Slacker really step up this season. Guys like George Smith get minutes early on, these younger players. I think if they can get experience and Donahue can kind of figure out their rotation and um, get everyone healthy, I think this is a team that's definitely to be feared in the Ivy League. Yeah, I think the, the Ivy League schedules definitely work a little bit different. It's It always turns out to be sort of a tale of two seasons almost, where you have the first season, you know, being non-conference, a bunch of those road games. Some of those, you know, you schedule Florida State and travel down there. But I think the second half of the season, we're going to see a lot of these Ivy League games, which are really going to matter. Um, Joey, do you expect either of these teams to turn it around? What can we expect? You've been to a lot of games. You know, you've been covering the teams very closely. Give us the inside scoop. Yeah, I think one thing, I think the men's team I'm very hopeful for. I mean, they another storyline, too, is they've barely played any games at home. I mean, they've played, I think, just two games at home so far this season, which is kind of ridiculous when you think yeah. about 13 games in the season. They had, um, you know, an almost two-week-long trip over the Thanksgiving break. So that, that can really take a toll, too, especially players that aren't used to playing on a college schedule, having the rigor of playing against guys that might be bigger than you every night, kind of getting, you know, beat up in the paint and then having to turn around and play another game the next night. So I think, I mean, they have six in a row at the Palestra home games coming out of the break. Um, and I think that's a chance for them to really get them momentum, playing in front of the home crowd, get comfortable. And I do think that they can figure it out, especially if they can get healthy. I think Donahue is a, is a good coach. He knows what he's doing. He's been here a while. He knows what it takes to win in the Ivy League. And I think they definitely can be right up there. I expect them to finish, you know, at the very least in the top three of the Ivy League. But I think they could win it. It just comes down to, similar to those other teams we talked about, can they win those big games? Yeah. Um, the women's team is a little bit more of a question mark because I just don't know if, 
if they will be able to find figure that groove out in time. Um, because in the Ivy League, we know that you can't really lose too many games early in conference play or else um, it happened to the football team. It happened to these other teams in, in the fall that if you lose a couple of Ivy games early, it can be hard to climb back from that hole. But I think that both teams still have a shot to win um, and kind of achieve all the goals that they wanted to, which was win that conference championship, get to the tournament and have the chance to play in the tournament for the first time in years. Because, I mean, they had the conference tournament canceled because of coronavirus, obviously, a couple of seasons ago. No season last year, so definitely both teams are hungry to do it. So lastly, we're going to talk about swimming at UPenn, which, you know, the men's are performing well. They're 3-2 and two right now. They got a first-place finish at the Zippy Invitational. But the real national headlines has been in the women's division. So you might have seen these headlines very recently. Um, Tucker Carlson, obviously, on Fox News covering the topic. We see a bunch of Daily Mail uh, articles about this, New York Post articles. But essentially, a uh, female swimmer, Leah Thomas, is now competing in the women's division. She, uh, in the past, competed in the men's division for about a few years. She's currently two and a half years into hormone replacement therapy which according to the International Sports Federation or the IOC, which, you know, governs the Olympics and other uh, sports leagues like that, requires at least one year of hormone replacement therapy, which means she is very much in the clear in that regard. However, she's really making, I guess, there's a lot of controversial headlines surrounding this because she's breaking many, many records. Uh, most recently at the Zippy Invitational, she was the fastest in the nation. It was basically not even close either. Uh, many people are citing concerns, you know, that she's threatening national records sent by Olympians. Missy Franklin and Katie Ledecky, some of her teammates are even speaking out against her, quoting the fairness of the sport, you know, quoting that they're unmotivated because, you know, really, if they have no chance to win, why even bother training in the first place? Quote, they feel so disencouraged because no matter how much work they put in, they're going to lose. Usually they can get behind the block and know they outtrained all their competitors and they're going to win and give it all they got, the source said. So it's obviously creating a lot of internal friction. We have some of her own teammates speaking out against her when all she wants to do is swim in a division you know, that accepts her. And so she's not welcome in the men's division anymore. She's not welcome in the women's division simply because she's winning. So obviously that begs the question, what type of division should Leah Thomas be allowed to compete in? What type of division should other trans athletes be allowed to compete in? Personally, for me, the idea of the body control with the hormone replacement therapy is super, super <laughs> whack, honestly. I, I don't uh, approve of that at all. And I think it's definitely a problem that we're going to have to continue to sort of confront in the next few years. I, I also think that it's probably not feasible right now to create a whole separate division for these athletes to compete in. But obviously, I understand the complaints of fairness in sports. Obviously, all athletes, all competitors are supposed to have a fair playing field. Obviously, you know, you don't want any unfair advantages. Everyone's playing by the same rules. Everyone even sort of accepts some of the burdens of the game. You know, for example, on track, you're not allowed to just run through the middle of the field to finish first. You have to follow within the lines. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of fairness questions, like I said, motivation questions, but obviously the feasibility part of it. It's not really possible, like I said, to, to put trans athletes in their own division and have them compete fairly. So I think, you know, we're simply reporting the facts right now. There's been a lot of national headlines, but um, definitely stay, uh, stay informed, read some articles, watch some interviews. Leah Thomas had a great 30-minute podcast where she talked about her transition and sort of a lot of the hate and a lot of her feelings revolving um, around this. So yeah, definitely stay informed and, and go check it out because I think this is definitely an ongoing issue, something that we're going to continue to hear about in the next five, 10 years as it becomes even more and more um, of a pressing issue with more trans athletes and more questions of fairness and whatnot. All right, so now we've finished our pen roundup. We're going to go into segment one, which, like I discussed at the top, of the podcast is going to be sort of revisiting the NBA, looking at our over-unders from the season, maybe discussing some of the MVP picks, some of the title contenders at this point in the season. 
certainly some of the things that I said uh, were very wrong. For example, I had the Warriors at 48.5, and I and I, uh, I might have taken the under on that. And, you know, before I just retire, let me give you some reasoning. I, I really, I quoted specifically relying on new pieces to be old pieces. And what I really didn't see coming is that all their new pieces, uh, Jordan Poole, you know, Gary Payton Jr., they're actually just better than all their old pieces. And we still have the same version of Stefan Draymond. They're looking like prime versions of themselves. We still obviously don't have Klay Thompson coming back. I personally still think his health is a little bit of a question, but they're obviously playing uh, his timeline very, very safely. They're really not rushing anything, making sure he's fully healthy before he comes back. Similar to what Durant did, and we can sort of see how he's recovering from his injury. He looks like one of the best players in the league already. So the Warriors are currently 21 and four, uh, sorry, 21 and five after losing the 76ers last night. They still boast one of the best records in the league. We're almost halfway uh, to the end of the season, but honestly, with their top tier defense and with Clay coming back, I really expect them to be, you know, a top one, top two team in the West. And I think they're going to be a difficult out. So I think it's safe to say that I was definitely incorrect about this one. Um, Joey, maybe you can take us through the, the cream of the crop of the East a little bit. Tell us what you got right or wrong. Yeah, I think, you know, right at the top, the Brooklyn Nets sit as everyone, except for me, I, I guess, called. I, I was, I picked the under on them just with the questions with Kyrie Irving. And I mean, those questions are still there. I think, you know, this Brooklyn Nets team and, and the roster they have, I don't think they can, you can be the Brooklyn Nets this year and not have Kyrie Irving questions. I think it's just um, kind of dynamic there. Um, but I mean, you look at them 18 and eight, I mean, they're, they're absolutely dominating four now in the division, 10 to three on the road too, which is very impressive to be doing in the NBA, going at these opposing arenas. Um, I think Steve Nash is probably one of the best coaches in the league, very underrated, very young, obviously, but I think he's doing a great job with that team, just balancing all of the issues. Um, because the Nets job right now, isn't just, you know, a basketball job, it's, you know, managing a lot of superstars, managing the minutes, managing the load management. Um, so it's, it's a lot of work for him. And I think he's doing a good job. I think the Nets are, you know, right there, just like everyone expected. I took the under, so I was wrong on that. Um, also wrong in the New York Knicks, who I was very high on coming into the season. Um, they obviously surprised a lot of teams last year, kind of crashed in, but really have struggled this year. Right now, um, there's kind of some concerns that maybe Julius Randle in the locker room isn't isn't being as much of a leader as they need. Um, that's kind of been a more recent headline in the past like 24 hours or so. Um, people are saying that that he, as well as like you know Derek Rose and some of their other guys, that you would expect to be leaders just because their staffs on the team are maybe more quiet. Um, in terms of the locker room. So some locker room dynamics, you know, being questioned there. And obviously none of us are in the locker room, so nobody can really speak on that in terms of facts, but that could definitely be a, a play. And I think the Knicks just overall are a team that have really kind of disappointed this year. I mean, you look and, and they're kind of, you know, right there more closer to the Orlando Magic than they are to the Brooklyn Nets. And I think that that's um, definitely not what they had in mind. Still time to turn around at 12 and 14. Yeah. They're definitely not, you know, at five and 22, like the Magic are. You see kind of the Pistons and Magic kind of at the bottom and then the big jump up to the Pacers. I think the Knicks are still in it, but um, definitely disappointing and not where they wanted to be at this point in the season. Yeah, similar team uh, in the West, in, in my opinion, is the Mavericks. So sort of still hovering around 500. I'd sort of predicted at the beginning of the season that Luka would really take that that leap. Um, I think it's comforting to know that, you know, you see him losing some of these close games and, and saying, I need to get better. I need to get more clutch. So I think simply for him, you know, he has the skills. He has the talent, obviously. It's just a matter of getting the confidence and really being that guy taking over the game, um, being the best player on the floor when he needs to. I think, um, obviously, there are some questions with Jason Kidd, uh, first year as his coach. I, I really don't think he's doing a lot for them on the defense, but uh, Kristaps Porzingis was another big question mark playing, uh, coming into the season, and he's playing quite, quite well. He's you know obviously being touted as, quote-unquote, the best rim protector in the NBA, which I don't know if I'd go that far, but he's definitely providing some offensive and defensive stability that was lacking in the past couple of years. You know, he's coming in and off uh, the court with injuries and whatnot, but I think um, this year it's, it's been great to see his efficiency numbers go up. He's been, you know, a little bit stagnant the past uh, two, three years. But I think, you know, him really taking that next leap, being the the duo, 
with Luca is I think what the Mavericks really need. Um, I'm you know the over is at forty eight point five. I I still think I don't, I'm not loving the bet, but I still think there's a lot of time to turn it around this season. Um, like I said, I really think that the fact that Luca knows that he needs to get better is really really important for me because he is the focal point of that team. He is the future. And so as long as he's confident and he's motivated, I think this team is really gonna maybe make a splash in the playoffs honestly we've seen them gain some experience in the past two three years they have a similar uh a similar roster the past two three years um hopefully they've you know they can take that veteran experience and, and actually deliver some results this season yeah and another team that the kind of that 48 and a half over under the, the start of season that i took the under on nikki was a little more on the over was the miami heat um, and right now at 16 and 11 they're kind of you know it could go either way but it, it looks right now they're going to hit that over um, be a playoff team just like Nikki expected. Kind of the question marks um, that I thought about that you know beginning of season. It looks like they've kind of you know figured out and been the cl- same Miami Heat team that they have been. And I think the only question will be like the Heat, all, like we always ask with the Heat is, can they win those games in those big series against a team like the Nets, against a team like the Bucks? I still think right now the answer is no. So I still don't think that they're a team that you know pushes for the finals and has shot at the title. But I definitely think it's a strong playoff team. I see them right, you know, maybe at four seed, maybe at the three seed if they win a, a couple extra games. What about you, Nikki? No, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think they're probably maybe a few years just behind the Bucks and, and the Nets and stuff like that. Maybe if you had Kyle Lowry and Jimmy Butler like a, a two or three years ago, um, I'd feel a lot more confident in this team. I mean, if Bam takes that next leap, who knows? But honestly, I don't see it from this team. I really think that they're going to fall in the second round, most likely, to some of the better teams. Um, obviously, you know, Joey, you can talk a little bit about the 76ers, but, you know, they're in trade talks a lot. I'm, I'm hoping to see a big move from them um, that can maybe take them over that little uh, hump of the the east that they've been struggling with past two three years yeah the Sixers are they're an interesting team always i feel like Mm -hmm. there's there's always they're one of the teams that i feel like plays um not the most bland style basketball but there's not a lot on the Mm -hmm. court that you they don't have like the the flashy but they obviously have joel Embiid, you know big personality great player Uh, but they don't have the same like flashy player that you would in like a steph curry for the warriors or or you know someone like that but i think the Sixers just play an efficient style of basketball um, it was super fun, you know, last night just watching them play. The, they're taking on the Warriors. Mm-hmm. Matisse Thibel putting them on, you know, mm-hmm. Steph Curry doing what he does best. One of the best defenders in the game against one of the best, you know, shooters in the game. Yeah, I mean, it was teeth. just it was just absolutely great to watch. I think it was like a, a great battle. Sixers obviously won that one. Um, and they're sitting right now at like the sixth seed right now just on the way with their 15 and 12 record. But I think it's a playoff team. I think that it really comes down to, like you said, can they will they make a move? Because I don't think right now the Sixers roster is in a way that they can beat the Nets over the course of seven games. Yeah. Same with the Bucks. Um, I think that's really what it boils down to for a lot of these teams in that tier of like the Bulls, the Heat, yeah. the Sixers. I don't think I think, you know, in a one off game, maybe in a best of three, they could they could pull one out, but I don't think over over seven games is such a long period of time mm-hmm. and we see basketball kind of do the same thing that the baseball does and they kind of levy the competitiveness with, by having those longer terms. It's not like football where you can kind of come in and, and yeah. sneak a game on a team. Yeah, I think uh, the one great luxury that the 76ers have, like you mentioned, is Joel Embiid. And he, you know, remains one of the best centers in the league. He he definitely remains a player that can steal one or two playoff games simply by dropping 40, 50 points. I think if you see a good matchup, since we know, you know, playoff basketball is all about matchups. If we see him face a team like the Nets, for example, that doesn't really have a great rim protector, we might just be able to see him dominate inside. We might be able to see Sixers slow down the game, play with more possession, uh, and really just dominate in the half court, I think. But, you know, if they play the Bucks, for example. I'd I'd expect Giannis to sort of be like, okay, guys, I uh, let me play center, let me take Joel, and maybe shut him down. Uh, personally, I still think Giannis is the best player in the league. Sorry, Steph Curry. <laughs> um, but let's return to the West a little bit. Um, I'm gonna hold off on the Grizzlies. I I took the under on them. I still don't really know, you know, what I was thinking with them. Uh, John Morant's missed the past couple six seven games, and the Grizzlies are going on an absolute tear. It's been really really surprising, honestly. But you know, we're gonna talk about that a little bit more later. Uh, when I do the concluding segment and give you my full Grizzly check-in. 
But let's go to the Lakers right now. I took the over on them, and I'm just feeling like an idiot because they are really not jiving well. I don't like watching Russell Westbrook on this team at all. I think it's very difficult to, to have him sort of be efficient. But also, you know, we want him taking shots. We want him doing all that he can. We want him on the floor. And I say we because I'm from Los Angeles. So, you know, I'm, I'm just going to kind of give my opinion on, on my crappy team right now. But honestly, I've, I've, I see no rhythm at all in this team. They really haven't been able to jive. I, I'm really skeptical of the defense. I don't think anything is going to happen in the playoffs, no matter if we get new pieces. Um, you know, we've seen Miles Turner in the trade talks, but when you give away your two best wing defenders in KCP and Crusoe, who's, you know, now one of the best wing defenders in the league, it's really just not helping you, you know, re-signing Avery Bradley and getting Trevor Arisa, both old guys, basically just way too slow to even make an impact. You know, I, I don't like the body language either. LeBron, you know, he, he's not trying on defense and then he looks around at his team like, why, why didn't you help me on that or whatever? <laughs> um, AD just doesn't look like he really cares. I've been saying for two or three years that he should be playing center. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and, you know, I, as long as his team just doesn't actually work hard, doesn't try and win every single game and get better in the regular season, they're not going to be able to prepare themselves for the postseason. They're probably going to fall uh, bottom half of the West. I And I really don't see them making uh, a push in the regular season they're gonna have a shot in the playoffs because they have lebron obviously but they need to get more in sync and they need to start playing as a team um certainly if anything's gonna happen on the defensive end which as we know gets even more and more impactful you know if they run into the suns and whatnot they're just gonna get absolutely slaughtered and i'd probably predict that they they lose in a five game series to the suns or warriors at the, at the current moment so um not too high on them right now but um yeah, yeah. No, i think you raised like a lot of i think the lakers i mean those same issues that the nets have but the, the nets handle very well the lakers just don't handle in the same way i mean because the yeah. talent's there the i mean the, the players in the lakers roster might have just as much talent as the ones on the nets um you know when you have lebron when you have ad you have mm -hmm. russ but I mean, just seeing the way they don't jive, the way that they can't blend those talents, the way that instead of helping those those talents kind of compete against each other, I think it almost was a little bit, obviously a lower profile team last year when, when Russell was the Wizards, but it was kind of that same thing. You know, he was excelling, setting records personally, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really impacting the team as much. I think yeah. it's been kind of the big Russell Westbrook storyline over the past couple of years is that, you know, he's done very well. He, he looks, but he just doesn't look quite like he fits in with any of these teams that he's on. Yeah. I mean, he's also been in the league for 12 or 13 years or whatever, and he still hasn't figured out how to play basic defense. So, you know, it's never going to help when you're playing you know, four people on defense against NBA quality teams. And so, you know, if he doesn't get that together, if, if LeBron and AD don't whip him up into shape until playoffs, you know, I'd have no problem trading him or even benching him, having him be a six man and just raise the floor of the bench, honestly, because his defense is an absolute liability and it definitely doesn't help the team at all, stopping anyone. Yeah. And before we, I mean, Nikki's going to talk a little about the mm -hmm. Suns. Before we do, um, just a little shout out to the Cavaliers, a <laughs> team that the, the very easy line to take the over on for me at the start of the year was the 26 and a half. And I mean, they're at 16, just 11 more games and they'll be over. I think it's kind of crazy, especially because, you know, Colin Sexton, obviously out for the season. Mm. Um, and a lot of the story was, you know, can that, that sex land back, you know, backcourt be, be what makes yeah. the difference. But it was also can Evan Mobley kind of come in and be their guy because they didn't think that. They didn't think Sexton or Garland was really that that guy, that difference maker. Yeah, yeah. Mobley so far has been, you know, everything they've kind of wanted from yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me just talk about Evan Mobley a little bit. I mean, this guy looks like freaking Hakeem Olajuwon in his first year. This guy comes in, and he literally runs the Cavaliers' defense. He is just providing all the defensive prowess that you need. He's the anchor of their team right now. It doesn't show in the numbers, but he is an absolute menace. His switchability provides so much for the Cavaliers on defense. He's efficiently putting it in, uh, finishing on picks and, and pick and rolls, uh, doing his part on offense. He has a consistent jump shot already, which is crazy. He looks absolutely confident. He looks like he is the best player on the floor, and I think he knows it. You know, he wants to play that way, and, you know, normally we don't see rookies sort of take this uh, leap in mentality until maybe year two, year three, you know, like we've seen Jaw doing, like we see, you know, Trey Young, other guys like that. But, you know, Mobley is coming in, and he is just a finished product. I mean, this guy is 
like already one of the best centers in the league. He he's insane on defense, and I just think can watch for him to get better and better. No, Evan Mobley makes the Cavaliers absolutely the easiest over the year. I think you know consider that a lock. Um, Joey, you got it right. You know I'm gonna tell a little bit. We're gonna switch gears a little bit. Uh, to another team in the East that's kind of underperforming a little bit. The Pacers. I kind of uh, covered the West when we first did this, but I had to sort of throw this in. Because they've just sort of been a middling team for the last few years. I think they're kind of not, they're not dysfunctional at all. You look at their starting five, they're, they're a nice bet sometimes in regular season games. But I think they sort of know that this is not going to be a championship level team. Um, they're sort of hovering around 500 once again. They're a little bit below that even. And I think we're going to see them trade maybe some pieces like Miles Turner and Sabonis and to go, go into full rebuilding mode. Um, again, no disrespect on the Pacers, but it's kind of just, it's a win now league. You don't really have a championship window for too long and you sort of need to build a team accordingly and you know this has kind of been the same group for the past two three years and clearly they're just not making it work um so you know i think they're probably going to blow up their team pretty soon uh, as the trade deadline approaches as some championship contenders are trying to bolster their rosters uh i already mentioned miles turner's the lakers has a possibility but um yeah definitely stay tuned to see how this this team reshapes and which pieces are going to go where All right, and for our next segment, the NFL segment, we're going to be recording this right now as kind of the first window of games is going on. Right now, the Browns, Nick, Nicky's probably happy the Browns are yeah. taking care of business <laughs> against the Ravens. The Chiefs are taking absolutely taking care of business against the Raiders, mm -hmm. and the Cowboys are taking care of business against Washington. So yeah. we kind of already have a good idea of what's what's going to be happening this Sunday, but that's just a caveat before we get into kind of revisiting some of our contenders and pretenders from earlier this season. Um, we kind of agreed on a couple of contenders um, in the Rams, Cardinals, Bills, and Bucks. But Nikki, I'm going to toss it over to you to kind of get started on our first one. That was kind of a toss up the Titans. Yeah. So just to lay the scene a little bit, right now we have four games remaining in the NFL season. Um, the AFC South race, which contains the Titans, the Colts, the Texans, and the Jags. So basically, only teams of relevance are the Titans and the Colts at this moment. Um, the race is sort of tightened up a little bit. Uh, we discussed Derrick Henry's injury a few weeks ago, which is definitely showing its effects now. I think uh, teams are definitely sort of adapting to Tennessee and sort of like figuring out what they're doing. I think they sort of figure out how to counter the uh, the, the sorry Derrick Henry-less offense of the Titans. Um, and we sort of have, on the flip side, the Colts, which are really gaining their groove right now. Um, you know, they're 7-6, and six, but they almost have 100 more points for than their opponents. I, I really think their defense is solid. They've been very solid since Frank Wright has been their coach for a while. Um, and on the offensive side of the, of the ball, Jonathan Taylor is looking like the best running back in the league right now, definitely taking the crown from Derrick Henry while he's um, been absent. And... Honestly, if the Colts make a push late in the season, they have a pretty easy schedule in the final weeks of the season. And it's really possible that, you know, Jonathan Taylor just puts the team on his back. And, you know, if he if he really rushes his way uh, to those victories, I think it's possible he, he'll be able to steal an MVP crown because it's a very, very wide open field right now. Um, but, you know, ultimately returning to the Titans, I'm, uh, I'm I initially said that they were a contender, but I honestly just don't think so anymore. Um, this team looks really lackluster on defense. They've sort of been struggling against some of the worst teams in the league. Um, and, you know, even I, I don't think they're going to capture the bye anymore. We've seen a couple teams sort of pass them. Um, you know, I think even if they finish at this point with the 13 and four or a 12 and five record, they're probably not going to get the first seed. They're not going to have home field advantage throughout the whole playoffs, which I was sort of banking on for them to have any chance. So I'm going to I'm going to switch my uh, prognosis, make them a content, or sorry, pretender at this point. Um, Joey, you have anything to add on that or no? I mean, I'm, I'm pretender. Yeah. I was pretender originally. I'm going to keep it there. Just kind of all the reasons you highlighted, Nikki. Um, but kind of another team that we had as contender mm -hmm. kind of peg was the Ravens. Yeah. Um, kind of interesting from the, the games as we're recording right now. Lamar Jackson kind of out right now with a, a right ankle injury. Yeah. So obviously no information on how severe that is right now. 
Um, if it is severe and, he, and he's going to be out for a while, it's obviously really detrimental to their hopes. But for this, I think we'll assume that he's going to be able to, you know, suit up for them um, mm. for the sake of this. So I guess this becomes worthless if, if this becomes yeah. serious. But take that with that grain of salt. Yeah, I think um, obviously they're a pretender with no Lamar in the playoffs. Um, like Joey said at the top of the podcast, they're definitely struggling right now in a big divisional game. Uh, they're down 24-6 to Cleveland right now in Cleveland. Obviously, this was a huge game for Cleveland. Um, the, the AFC North is, wow. I mean, what a division right now. Everyone's basically within a game or two. All of these teams are very much playoff quality. I think any single one of them could squeeze in the playoffs. Ultimately, I think we both still have the Ravens, assuming that Lamar Jackson is still going to be in, taking the division. Um, they've obviously been battling through so many injuries. We were just discussing. They've placed 23 people on injured reserve throughout the season. Obviously, placing Lamar Jackson on injured reserve, an MVP candidate at any given moment, is not going to help their chances. So I think, you know, we'll see the severity of that injury. But ultimately, I think they're going to get into the playoffs. They're probably going to have home field advantage in the first round or two. So I definitely still label this team as a contender. I think Lamar Jackson, when he's on the field, he is that difference maker. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we said it once, too, like the narrative that Lamar Jackson can't win in the playoffs, I don't mm -hmm. really buy it. I think he's a nope. difference maker. I think that really, I mean, this team, the reason why I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt is I think when it's on the line, I think they can get it done. And I have more confidence than to be able to get it done than, than I do the Browns. I think the Browns are really capable of what they're doing today, showing up on a Sunday afternoon kind of surprising some people but I feel like they always let us down when when kind of the lights are on and I know I know Nikki feels that but I feel like the Browns are still I just they feel like they're not they're not there yet and the, the Steelers obviously have some some crazy things going on as always um and I don't think they're contenders either but I think it's the Ravens I think for me yeah certainly um I actually had a very strong feeling about Cleveland coming into this week um sort of a scheduling anomaly uh this hasn't really happened in the NFL since I think 1970 it was but basically uh the Browns and the Ravens played two weeks ago then the Browns bide and now they're playing the Ravens again. So it's been this really weird situation where they've kind of had like two weeks to prepare and game plan and rest up for the Ravens. So I really wouldn't take this loss as, you know, indicative of too much. Obviously, you know, Lamar Jackson's not even going to get a chance to come back in the second half. Um, losses happen. Uh, so I don't think this is, you know, obviously a bad loss, blemish for the, the Ravens for sure. But I don't think this is going to hinder their chances going forward in the playoffs. The Browns are definitely, you know, a solid team that, you know, if they get the right matchup, they have a great ground game. Both Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb are back. And so obviously they have that dynamic duo, uh, still have those playmakers on defense. So I think they're a threat anytime they stop, uh, they step on the field, but definitely feel better about the Ravens overall. Okay. We also have the Chargers on here. We'll skip over them. I think Nick and I are going to be talking a little bit about them when we kind of go over our predictions for the yeah. rounding out of the playoff picture. But another team taking care of business right now is the Cowboys. They're, they're mm -hmm. absolutely handling things right now. Nikki, what do you think about them? I had them kind of pegged as a pretender. Um, I think I might switch to contender, but I mean, you've had them as contender all along. Yeah. So... Um, I'm I'm a, a Dallas Cowboys fan, and so I have a lot of uh, feelings about this team. I would say just based on the circumstances in the NFC, um, you know, the Packers, the Bucks, and I'd say maybe the Cardinals, maybe you throw the Rams in there, are really looking like the only strong teams. So I think, you know, the Cowboys are going to take care of the division. They're clobbering Washington right now, extending their division lead to three games. So that's really not going to be a question for them at all. We're going to see this team in the playoffs. Um, for me... I watch this team and I see impact plays on defense that I have not seen in 10 years. Tony Romo never had a defense like this. He never had Michael Parsons. He never had Trayvon Diggs, not to mention all the weapons that Dak has in offense. So I think this is really just, it's a classic Cowboys team. We got a lot of stars. We're probably still idiots. We're probably still going to make boneheaded mistakes and probably shoot ourselves in the foot. So there's always that possibility that we're going to lose in the conference. But, um, you know, this is definitely a team to look out for. I think they're absolutely a contender. And like I said, especially given how open the NFC East is, you know, it's only one or two games and, you know, it's playoff football. And if you have a game in Dallas, who knows what's going to happen, you know? Yeah, I'm with you, Nick. I think I'll, I'll, I'm flipping over to contender. I still don't know if I would, I take them on a, you know, in mm -hmm. a playoff game against a team like the Cardinals. But I yeah. do think 
I just am not as sold on the other teams as I was earlier yeah. this season. Yeah. Um. So flipping back over to the AFC, um, we're gonna talk about the Chiefs a little bit. So they're kind of exploding now. Um. They're decimating the the Raiders. I think they were winning thirty five to three at halftime or something like that. So I think they're gonna be extending to a six game win streak. They've kind of completely turned around their season. People were talking about questions on defense before. They've posted absolutely phenomenal performances, holding teams to nine points to nine points to 14 points. And obviously, you know, so far the Raiders have three points right now going into almost the fourth quarter. So this defense has really turned things around. I, I don't think their offense was ever a question. We know who Tyreek Hill is. We know who Patrick Mahomes is. We know who Travis Kelsey is. Certainly Andy Reid has the uh, the pedigree. We've seen what he's done in, done in the past. So I think this team is, is definitely going to be a contender. Um, I'm sort of happy with my pick. I, I picked them when they were down the dumps to make the playoffs. Um, now they're Definitely looking like they're back and one of the best teams. So, yeah, definitely a contender in my books. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's one thing Nick and I like to do is take victory laps when we can. And I also <laughs> yeah. had I had the Chiefs as a contender, even when things were going. I think everyone knew that the Chiefs could kind of turn it on, yeah. figure things out. I don't think anyone doubted Mahomes or Andy Reid. And I feel like they have cleaned it up every way. They got rid of the, the turnovers have been cleaned up. The defense is figured out. And they're playing at the normal Chiefs level. They're not necessarily elite, I wouldn't say yet. Um, mm -hmm. But they're playing at that, you know, average level that they need to to make the Chiefs a very dangerous team. Yeah, and um, I think... Finishing off this list, we're we're a little bit disappointed in ourselves. Back when we did these this contenders pretenders, we did not even put the New England Patriots on our list. We did not even qualify them as being good enough to judge as a pretender. And here they are leading the AFC. They look like they have one of the best defenses in the league. Obviously, Bill Belichick at the helm. Mac Jones looks great. With the MVP race so wide open, people even saying he could win MVP. You know, I'm not going that far, but definitely this is a really complete team. You know, they spent the most that they ever have in the Bill Belichick era in the offseason. It's absolutely paying off. Judon making a, a huge impact and they you know on the offense there's no standout names but it's, it's just a well-oiled machine it's bill belichick doing what bill belichick does getting the most out of players and this team you know if you're in foxborough playing against bill belichick i mean good luck i i'm not gonna be betting on any team who's going into foxborough in the playoffs so i think we're definitely probably both switching to contenders here um they've definitely catapulted themselves to the top of the afc and you know like i said it's not you know there's not a great a lot of great teams this year we, the chiefs have kind of been turning it around and they're definitely going to be a threat in the playoffs but besides that i mean they they handled the bills um who have been looking awful um and i think they're definitely going to capture the division and like i said we're going to see them in the playoffs maybe with a bye definitely with home field advantage yeah it's a slam dunk for me i mean i feel mm -hmm. like the patriots it's yeah. like you said on offense it's players that we don't necessarily know but are they're, they're doing well and it's a well owned machine i think it's even more fun because Mac Jones is not Tom Brady. Yeah. And he's still very great. And I, I love the the swagger he has. And it's a very just he has, he has so much swagger. Their, their game the other you know, last week and he goes two for three um, passing. And I was talking about how great the game is. Just like I think this is a team that is a classic Belichick team. He knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that they're, they're going to be dangerous. Yeah. And um, lastly, we sort of agreed on some of our contenders. Uh, we still have the Cardinals, the Packers and the Bucks all taking care of business. Don't think there's anything too substantial to say about them. It's all, of course, you know, playoff season comes around. We give our predictions. But um, one team I want to talk about just for a tiny bit is the Bills. Um, they've sort of fallen off. Like I said, they they've lost the uh, division lead to the Patriots. Joey, what do you see this this team doing in the playoffs, if anything? Yeah, I think the Bills, I feel like this was always what people thought, is was that there was regression coming. I, I don't think anyone thought Josh Allen was going to do what he did. I don't think anyone saw the Bills repeating. I think that was what a lot of Bills fans were trying to not think about, was the fact that maybe the Bills ceiling was what they did last year. Yeah. Um, and obviously that wasn't win a Super Bowl. So I think people were worried that the Bills are kind of like one of those teams in the NBA, like the Bulls, yeah. where it feels like they can be very good even though the Bills aren't playing very well, but the Bills can be a very talented team. They can play well, but they just cannot win a title. And I feel like that's where this Bills team stacks up. I feel like they're 
a good team. Obviously, they're not playing well right now, but I, I still think they're good. I still believe in Josh Allen, believe in them. I just feel like they don't have that Super Bowl ceiling that a lot of these other teams do. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, Yeah, and I think lastly, we're going to sort of step back a little bit from maybe looking at the Super Bowl contenders and sort of, you know, last few weeks of the regular season. What's really, really exciting and fun is looking at those division races, looking at who's trying to get in for the wild cards. Uh, seating as we sort of figure out what the playoffs picture is actually going to look like. So we're going to give a little bit of our predictions for the wild card, taking you through the NFC and the AFC, you know, cover a little bit, covered these teams a little bit already, but um, I'm going to start it off in the NFC. I have the Rams. We haven't talked about them a ton, but sort of flying under the radar. They're an eight and four team. Obviously they, they, they made those trades for Odell Beckham Jr. So, sort of uh, filling Robert Woods's place, but um, I think there's a lot of stardom here. I, I'm not too sure if this team's actually going to be able to make a push in the playoffs, but like I said, I think they have a pretty easy schedule and enough talent that they're going to be in the playoffs. They're probably, I, like I said, I have them taking the five seed, but um, yeah, I think it's really just in virtue of the fact that the NFC is very, very weak. Yeah, Joey, what about you? Yeah, the Rams are fun to talk about because I feel like they're the most NBA-like team out of any NFL team and that I feel like they were, mm -hmm. obviously, they, I mean, you had mainstays like Cooper Cup, Robert Woods. Obviously, Robert Woods is not, you know, able to help them out anymore now with the injury, but I feel like this right. is a team that, it feels like a lot of their pieces were still in place, but yet it still feels like they brought in people for this title run um, in a way that a lot of NBA teams do. Often in the NFL, you don't see someone bringing in a, a guy like Matthew Stafford and, you know, say this is our year yeah. for the title push, but it's happened this year, and I think, I don't know if the Rams do it. I mean, I think it'd be a, a great story. I think Matthew Stafford's a great quarterback. I think he was always underrated just because of his situation. But like you said, there's a lot of stardom, and when there's a lot of stardom, it can get pretty difficult. Yeah. And in, in football, you don't always need to have the best stars. I mean, there's 11 guys on the, on the field versus five on the court mm -hmm. in the NBA. It's a lot easier for one player to make a difference in the NBA game than yeah. it is in the NFL. Yep. So I feel like when you have a team like the Patriots that doesn't really have stars but has people mm -hmm. that can work together, work as a machine, I think that's always going to win out over a team like the Rams that, that needs those stars to come out. Yeah, I think um, they sort of, it's been, it's a, definitely a make or break year for the Rams. Um, I really don't think they're going to make it. I think, you know, you look at the Cardinals, they just look like a way better team uh, with individual pieces. You know, we had all these questions about Cliff Kingsbury last year, these these last game time decisions that he was making near the end of the games. They weren't great. They were losing a lot of games for his team. I think he's now cleaned it up a little bit, but there were never really questions about his coaching ability, about his play calling and whatnot. And we can sort of see that even without Kyler Murray, this team is still very, very well coached, getting the job done. Um, so certainly I think if we saw a Rams-Cardinals matchup in the playoffs, I'd be taking the Cardinals every single day of the week, especially with a healthy Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray. Even without him, I think the Rams would definitely struggle against the Cardinals. Yeah, no, I think it's fun to see the Cardinals really good again and really competitive. And I I think they take the NFC this year. I know we're not doing the Super Bowl picks, but I feel mm -hmm. like I feel like yeah. they take the NFC. Yeah, no, I, I think I sort of agree with that. Um, I think it'll take special performances from either Brady or Rodgers to sort of knock them off. But they definitely look like the strongest team right now. But, you know, it might just be a regular season fluke. Who knows if Tom Brady is really caring even and that much right now, you know? Yeah, I feel like the playoffs will let us know is coming up. And I feel like we're just all excited to watch along with you guys. All right, well, we've all been waiting for today, our F1 segment with our special guests, Catherine and Esther. They're both going to introduce themselves in a second. I know I woke up today and saw the headlines all over Twitter about F1. I don't know what happened. I don't know quite what F1 is. So I'm going to pass over to the experts and kind of let them take Nikki and I, as well as all of you, through what we exactly need to know. Hi, I'm Esther. I am a sophomore at Penn, and I am the incoming sports editor for The Daily Pennsylvanian. I'm Catherine. I'm a junior, and I'm the sports associate for the Daily Pennsylvanian. All right, so Esther, can you tell us a little bit about what F1 is in your eyes? What, what, what do we need to know about what this sport is? So Formula One is the highest class of open-wheel, single-seater Formula Auto racing in the world. So it's just 10 teams called Constructors with two drivers each, and there's like, a there's like hundreds of staff per team. 
and they all travel the world to race on F1-specific racetracks and sometimes even city street circuits. So um, these 20 people, they drive like the world's fastest cars, and they are literally living my life stream. <laughs> Just to travel the entire world and race your friends in the world's fastest cars and be probably like the 20 richest people in the motorsports history, um, I would really give up anything to do that. And what's crazy is that some of these drivers give up everything and more just to be in that seat. Yeah, so I'm a little bit curious. Um, obviously, I've heard of the the documentary on Netflix. My friends have been telling me to watch it. But I'm curious, how did you guys get into F1? And re what really drew you guys to the sport? Yeah, so I actually didn't get into F1 through Drive to Survive, though I know that a lot of people did. I got into F1 because I had a friend who was really into hockey. And then basically, it just sort of went from there. I started watching some races during the pandemic season, so that was my big pandemic obsession. I was just waking up early every weekend to watch the races. It fixed my sleep schedule. I was no longer waking up at like noon every single day. And then once it sucks you in, like it really gets you. It's hard to justify like watching these 20 extremely rich men drive around trying not to die or crash into one another. But what can I say? Like it's really easy to get invested and there's so much drama and really exciting racing normally happening every single week. And Esther, how about you? How did you, how did your F1 journey kind of begin? So similar to Catherine, I kind of had a crisis during the 2020 pandemic summer season. It was, it was a good crisis, I think though, because it was, we had the Olympics and then we had the Euros before that. I'm pretty much a massive soccer fan since like growing up like since childhood and a lot of my favorite soccer happens in Europe and a lot of F1 happens in Europe so a lot of the people are they know each other I guess and there's a lot of connections between that but once the Euros ended I kind of had a crisis because I had nothing to do and then I was looking through like soccer news and like next to it you would see like news about F1 and it's like I like driving cars like I think cars are cool I like to be in fast cars and these 20 people are in the world's 20 fastest cars so it's like maybe I'll get into this and then every I, I was just waiting for every race weekend it just happened I don't really remember how but I don't know here I am and I grew up in the south and like in the south there's just a whole lot more cars than there are here in Philly <laughs> And NASCAR was a big thing growing up. It's just like Dale Earnhardt is like a local, not even a local hero. He's just like a massive hero in the South. And I just kind of grew up on that. I just know NASCAR and just being in that vicinity of just being around so many cars. It's just like, why not F1? Yeah, what I have to say I'm curious about is, I mean, obviously sports are a big thing. Being a fan is a huge part of like, I know people consider it a huge part of their identity. What is it like, you know, having... So it's like a specialty sport. I mean, obviously, I know you're both friends and you can talk with each other. But what is it like kind of being a fan of something like so specialty? Like, do you kind of like have ownership and like feel like you can be very proud of like being a fan just because like it's smaller? Or what is that like? It's definitely an America thing. The fact that Formula One is so small because it's like probably the biggest sport in the world globally um, if you're talking about Europe. But it's definitely like I have subjected a lot of my friends to a lot of F1 talk that they did not ask to be a part of. Um, and I've also actually gotten like a few friends into Formula One um, just by sitting down and watching a race with them. But there's definitely an element of like, it's amusing being an American F1 fan because to a certain extent, like European F1 fans are also like, oh, ew, <laughs> American and F1 watching Drive to Survive or whatever. I feel like to a certain extent, because I liked hockey beforehand and that's not really the biggest big four sport in America either. That was always just sort of a feeling. Yeah, so I think fast forwarding to now, um, I guess 
break it break down how the F1 schedule actually works for us and sort of you know here we are in December 12th obviously a very very exciting race took place this morning which I think you guys can't wait to get into but just set the scene a little bit why was today for example so important here we are in December right yeah so the F1 season starts as early as like February in terms of testing and then races take place usually at least once every three weeks, but sometimes you get double or triple headers, which just basically means back-to-back weekends. Um, every There was a little bit of a mix-up or a change in the structure of every single weekend recently, um, but generally it works that there are like three practice sessions where teams essentially get data on the tires and help plan their strategies. And then there's a qualifying session where you're just trying to set the fastest single lap time which determines the starting grid position, which is incredibly important. And then you have the race itself, which is normally like two-ish hours of, uh, depending on the track, a certain number of laps. And then whoever finishes first, finishes first. Yeah. Um. So since it is only 20 drivers in the whole sport itself, like in Formula One, it kind of, a lot of people who aren't even into sports can just jump into it right away. So it kind of feels sometimes more like a reality show than like, a sports series just because there's so much personality and a lot of egos that kind of build into drama and that's kind of been a big part of the sport since its founding um the winners or like the champions are usually very strong spirited people and they especially now with people um like drivers who spend a lot of time on social media it's you get to know who they are a little bit more and especially with F1 was recently acquired by an American company called Liberty Media. And they've been trying to get into more of like the social online scene. Like they've been putting out so many YouTube videos and so much Twitter content that it just kind of drives the fandom on its own. And it's really easy to just get sucked into all of that. Yeah, no, I definitely think one of the most interesting facts about F1 is that it obviously is kind of an individual sport. I mean, obviously you have a team behind you, you have a company behind you, but you're really competing on your own. And I think it is really one of the most exciting individual sports. You know, it's not like basketball. It's not like football or soccer or anything like that. It's team. It's based on personality, right? So talk to us about this rivalry, sort of like, how did you guys get attached to whoever you got attached to? So I am a big Lewis Hamilton fan. I would say that he's my favorite driver. I'm also a big fan of Seb Vettel. Um, So I mean, not to get into spoilers for what happened or what we're going to talk about later, but I am a little bit upset about how this championship has panned out. Um, I just really respect Lewis a lot for, like, he is one of the greatest F1 drivers in all time. Like, everyone um, accepts this. He has the most pole positions and the most wins of all time. I think it's 103 at this point. And it's either him or Michael Schumacher, and it's probably Lewis. So, yeah, that's why I like Lewis. For me? Okay, so... This season, it's been the rivalry between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, but I kind of sit on the sidelines of that rivalry. Um, my favorite driver is Carlos Sainz. He is a Spanish driver for Ferrari. He used to be on McLaren last year with Lando, who's very popular with a lot of people in the United States or just people our age in general. But Carlos is kind of a kind character. He's a very easily likable person, but he gets kind of ignored under the radar by a lot of the media like he doesn't get that much media attention but he's always there doing his best like trying his best and um he actually placed oh my god oh my god (laughs) okay well um so carlos is on ferrari and his teammate is actually charles leclerc who is actually 
quite times as more popular than Carlos himself, but he was a really massive driver who was like, as soon as he came into F1, made a scene. But Carlos has actually placed above him, two places above him this season, so that's pretty interesting. And I also really like Pierre Gasly. He's the French driver for AlphaTauri, and he's had quite a lot of unique successes. Like, he's had some really standout, really emotional, really emotional victories, especially like his victory in Monza, which is one of my favorite races. And Carlos plays second, but it was worth it just for Pierre. So, yeah, I mean, on that rivalry between Lewis and Max, I think I'm, I wouldn't say really I'm a neutral because I don't dislike either of the drivers, which seems to be what people try to do with the rivalry. But it's just been really cool watching this season pan out between these two really talented drivers. And it's been really interesting and entertaining, at the least. Yeah, and speaking of drama, I mean, I know I know nothing about F1, but when I opened Twitter this morning, it was all, constantly, everything was trending F1. I Tell us what we need to know. I mean, apparently there was a lot of drama in this morning's race, so let everybody know kind of what happened. Yeah, so I will say I am biased. I am a Lewis Hamilton fan. But when I came into the season... So Lewis Hamilton drives for Mercedes, and Mercedes has dominated ever since they switched to hybrid engines. So I think that this was 2013, or was it 2012? So they've like won every single championship since then, and especially in 2020, it wasn't even close. Like Their car was just miles better than everyone else. But coming into this season, it really looked like Red Bull has stepped up their game, especially in the engine department. It looked like Honda made like a nearly unbeatable engine this year. So right out the gate from the first race, everyone was like, whoa, maybe this is Red Bull's ear, right? So like Lewis Hamilton won his seventh world championship last season, which like already made history in the record books. So I was sort of like, I would obviously like for Lewis to do very well, but also if there was another champion, I wouldn't be like devastated, right? And now <laughs> at the end of the season, it's really changed. I think that there have been a lot of moments this season in regards to crashes between Max and Lewis, literally media commentary between Max and Lewis, and just general racing incidents that have sort of pushed the line in terms of like what is acceptable racing and what isn't. And because of the wonderful Christian Horner, who, by the way, is married to Ginger Spice, this is very important. Like, I think that I went from being, if uh, Red Bull does all right, if Max wins his first championship, good on him, um, to being, like, upset if he won. Okay, so obviously coming into the season, we didn't really expect um, quite as much of a rivalry between uh, Verstappen and Hamilton. Obviously, you know, things have sort of culminated in the final race of the season. Esther, can you sort of set the stage a little bit? How did this rivalry sort of come to be? Yeah, as Catherine said, um, Red Bull kind of came into the season to make a scene, and sure enough, they did. But even early in the season, Hamilton was still consistently doing well, and so was Max, um, just coming up behind them. But I think the first time they had a major clash on the track was at Silverstone, which is the, the UK Formula One Grand Prix. And what happened there was, it was, was it, was it like turn one? No, it, it was, was lap one. It was lap one. They were racing wheel to wheel. And then there was this one very high speed corner called Cops, I believe. And Lewis understeered a little bit into Max and it ended up resulting in a collision and a red flag. And Max was out of the race, but Lewis was not. Um, and there was a whole circus about that. Um, 
which is honestly you could spend like an hour talking breaking down what happened after that to begin with but there was a lot of criticism because Lewis had celebrated his race win even after Max was taken to the hospital for precautionary reasons and Christian Horner and Helmut Marko who are um, essentially Red Bull front office people I guess you would call it in American sports parlance they went on a whole like Lewis crashed into him implying that Lewis crashed into him intentionally or that Lewis was wrong for celebrating and then Lewis received a lot of racist abuse for it um so not great but that was like one of their first major clashes and since then it's been a lot of hard racing there was a situation in Monza where Max's car ended up on top of Lewis like the tire touched his head um which was very scary and then um other instances where like they've just like nearly crashed or have have forced one another off the track uh so that's it's been messy yeah, I mean, obviously F1 is dominated by personalities, though. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, who these guys are and sort of, you know, their most flagrant actions, you know, wh- why you prefer one over the other? So Max is the Red Bull racing driver. He is Jos Verstappen's son. And essentially, he was built to be F1's golden boy since he was a teenager. I think he was in F1 before he was 18. Um, and he was essentially, they were like, we're going to make... Max, the youngest F1 world champion, didn't happen. Sebastian Vettel still holds that title. He's like, especially when he was younger, he had a reputation for being very aggressive and almost a dangerous driver. And I would say that that reputation has sort of mellowed out through the years. But in 2021, like that has sort of come back full force in terms of someone who's always driving on the limit and perhaps doing things that he shouldn't be um, in order to maintain like a good quote unquote racing standard. And Lewis is sort of a completely different story. He's much older than Max. I think he's older by like um, a decade and change. Uh, But he grew up, like I think, in one of Britain's estate houses. So he grew up poor. And obviously he's black. And I think that he's the only black F1 driver ever and still um, as yet. And he has won a world champion seven times. He won his first with McLaren. Then he made a very surprising move to Mercedes that obviously panned out. And he's just been dominating since then. He also had a reputation for being a little bit of a hothead when he was younger. But like since then, he's definitely mellowed out and matured, I suppose. All right. Now that we kind of set up this rivalry, I, I can't help but notice that both of them were at the top today at, in the race. I mean, who walk us through who won, what happened. And I mean, I know there's a lot of chaos, a lot of debate and a lot of drama, as it seems to be the case always in this rivalry. So walk us us through what happened there. So Max was on pole for this race, meaning that he was uh, on the first position. Actually, I'm going to start from the very beginning. They were tied coming in for the championship. If they had both crashed out of this race, Max would have won because he won more races this season. But this was essentially the last race decides who wins the championship. And that was how F1 is billing it. Uh, They were like, this is the race that's going to define who won the championship. So... Abu Dhabi is a notoriously hard track to overtake at, and Max was on pole, which meant that he was in the first starting position. So you would expect, if you drove like essentially a perfect race, perfect strategy, you would ex- expect the person on pole to essentially win the race because, again, very difficult to overtake. Yes, and on polling is determined by what exactly? Qualifying. So if you right. qualify first overall, then you're in the most advantageous position, essentially. Gotcha. Okay, so how did that pan out for Verstappen? Uh, for so this morning was actually the actual race after qualifying, 
And since Max was at the front, it was Lewis right beside him because the grid lines up next to each other. So it's like one and two are next to each other and then three and four behind them. So when after the formation lap and then when the lights went off, Max actually kind of had a poor start. Um, Lewis does this thing where he's very, very good at like letting go, knowing when, to, knowing when and how to let go of his clutch to have the best start possible. And of course, in the, at the highest stakes possible, he did that this morning. So even though Max was on pole, Lewis immediately at the start took first place from him. And as the race kind of circled on, like Max couldn't keep up. But then there was also an incident in lap one of this race as well, just like Silverstone. Where so both Max and Lewis were turning into a pretty sharp corner. And what happened was Max may have understeered, but Lewis was pushed off the circuit. And then the way the specific corner that they kind of clashed at was um, so that when Lewis went off the track, he could just cut the corner and then take the lead from Max. And it was a pretty wide lead. And then this led to obviously Red Bull being upset that Lewis should give back the position because. So you're not supposed to go off the track and then take a position while you're off the track. So obviously Red Bull was upset. But the thing is, the main administrative body, the FIA, decided that this incident didn't require a review, which was strange. Um, because even the FIA usually reviews all racing incidents and then decides on either time penalties or stuff like that. But this specific incident, um, they decided that it didn't require further review. So just from the start, this race was pretty dramatic, pretty weird, pretty strange. Just like continuing into the race, Lewis had the lead for most of it. And then Max was just trying from behind to do whatever he could. And then a lot of the strategy came down to pit stop. Yeah. So I guess before even all the safety car messes, um, Lewis was behind Sergio Perez, also known as Checo, for a period of time. And I think Max was something like six seconds behind him. And Checo was Max's teammate. So essentially what Checo did was try to hold up Lewis and not let Lewis get by. So as they were driving, they, he and Lewis were racing each other, which also takes a lot of life out of the tires. And then uh, ended up bringing the gap between Max and Lewis down to something like a second and a half from like six seconds, which was a really, really impressive drive by Checo. And he, he raced very fairly. Um, it was just really impressive. Very stressful as a Lewis fan to watch it. Um, but then he got by and he was able to put in a lead uh, with Max. So the most dramatic thing was the safety car. The safety car essentially comes out whenever there's debris on the track that needs to be cleared because they need real human beings to go onto the track and take it off. And it's not good to have cars going at like 200 kilometers an hour while that's happening. So the first safety car was a virtual one. That just means that drivers have to slow down to, I think, 40% of their pace. And that played into the hands of Max because he was in second. He had nothing to lose by taking a pit stop and getting on a fresh set of tires. And Lewis was trying to take his tires to the very end. So it was incredibly stressful because you have Lewis on tires that are literally like 20 laps older, trying to nurse them to the very end. But he was able to do it. Like he did a very impressive job of keeping the gap um, between him and Max over 10 seconds. And I believe that before the big controversy happened, it was at something like 11 seconds over max with something around like eight laps left to go. Mm -hmm. and, and what are the normal margins in races like this? Yeah. So if you win by 10 seconds, that's quite a bit. And so for context, if you want to get close enough to like really pass, 
if you're in within one second, you get like a boost that essentially lets you go a little bit faster on straights to let you pass. So 10 seconds is quite a large amount. Max was lapping Lewis faster by about 0.3 seconds before the race. He was ranging between like 0.3 to 0.8, but nothing in the one second range. So being a whole second faster is like a big deal. So he would have had to do that essentially if there were no other incidents in order to catch up to Lewis. Okay, so then what exactly happened to uh, to change Lewis's 10 second lead? So Nicholas Latifi of Williams was trying to pursue Mick Schumacher of Haas and then he ended up crashing and having to retire the car, which meant that because of the position of the car, they had to bring a safety car out. And because Max is again in second place and has nothing to lose, he took a pit stop, but Mercedes kept Lewis out again. So Lewis was stuck on these race old tires while Max was on a fresh set of soft tires, which are the fastest tire, but they don't last for as long. So, which is fine. There's a safety car. Where it really started to get messy was that there were five lapped cars between Max and Lewis, which essentially means that Lewis had caught up to them again and had passed them while Max hadn't yet. And there's a rule where in the safety car, you're allowed to let these cars through and let them pass. But the rule is after you do that, you're supposed to allow all of the cars to pass and then have the safety car do one more lap before you start racing. That's what it says in like the safety regulations. And what ended up happening was they didn't let every single um, car pass. They only let the five cars between Max and Lewis pass and then they immediately left the safety car go. So because Max was on a fresh set of soft tires and Lewis was on like 40 lap old hard tires, there was no chance. As soon as that happened, Max was going to win the championship, right? Like that was how it was just going to play out. So that's why you see a lot of people angry. Mercedes was appealing the decision. The FIA basically said, we, the FIA, have investigated the FIA and we did nothing wrong. Um, and then... Mercedes is going to be appealing that and they got a lawyer who defended Manchester City I believe and he's going to be arguing that in like court so right but obviously you know none of these legal you know consequences are going to have any effect on the race correct no like the race has already happened yeah. I guess the main thing is that it's going to throw no matter what happens it's just going to throw scrutiny on Max's first championship yeah I think that the big thing is like Obviously, if they had kept the safety car out of there, they would have been giving Lewis the win because then the race would have finished under a safety car where overtaking literally isn't allowed. So if they gave Lewis the win, then like people would be upset about that too, but they would also be following their own guidelines that they set out, right? I think the FIA's argument was also that Michael Massey, who is the race director, said that there would be a safety car. And when the message that there will be a safety car or there won't be a safety car is put out, then that's just the rule. So essentially, like Michael Massey can put out safety cars and take them away whenever he wants to. And that overrides like all other rules. But it's just. It's sketchy. It's weird. It's weird that he didn't let every other lapped car through. It also screws Carlos because Carlos was third at the time. And maybe if he was next to Max, he could have overtaken Max if they let the back markers through. But they didn't. So it was just a very clear attempt at trying to get in one racing lap in for the entertainment value of letting Max and Lewis go at it. But it was done so in such a way that was unstructured and just basically let Max win. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what does this do for the rivalry? Like, in the sport moving forward, do you think? 
the sport, yeah, the, the sport will just keep moving forward. I mean, I still feel like both of these drivers, well, Lewis in particular, he still has a couple more years left in him. And Max is very, very young. He's only like 24 right now. So, I mean, he said after the race that he wants to spend 10, 15 years just winning championships with Red Bull. So we'll see how that turns out. But I still think the rivalry is going strong. Lewis definitely still has a chance, even with all the regulation changes for next year. So, yeah, I guess this will be kind of an opportune time for new fans to just hop in and pick a side of the rivalry and just keep watching. Yeah, do you guys see anyone else as sort of maybe being able to overtake um, either one of them? Or do you think this rivalry is sort of going to be, you know, the main storyline for the next year or two? It is really, really difficult to say because 2022, they are completely changing the regulations for the cars. So no one really knows what's going to happen. The general prediction is that while they're figuring out all the new engineering, the cars are generally going to be a little bit slower, but no one knows who's going to end up on top. Um, if you're a Mercedes fan, you're hoping that Red Bull focus too much on developing this year's car in order to have a good 2022 car. If you're a Red Bull fan, you're hoping that Red Bull's new engine is going to be just as strong for next year as they start developing their own. But it's really, really up in the air. I would say the biggest thing would be looking at Ferrari and to see if they have successfully recovered after the 2019 engine cheating scandal and are back to being like one of the top like one or two teams on the grid. Because I would say up until around 2019, the top teams weren't Mercedes and Red Bull. They were Mercedes and Ferrari. So we'll see if that continues for 2022. And especially for new fans, what the new regulations are supposed to bring is just closer racing between like the midfield and the back markers. So um, also after this season, there's been a couple of really interesting driver moves. Like um, one of the UK's youngest um, talents, um, one of the UK's most um, youngest and interesting talents is moving to Mercedes, which who are like the top team right now. They did. I think they did. Yeah. So one of the UK's most prominent, interesting young talents is moving to Mercedes and their second driver is moving to kind of like a backfield team. But in the midst of that, yeah, we should probably see a lot more closer margins between like the midfield cars and the teams. Uh, sorry, really, I don't want to make this a pain for editing, but in terms of the drama aspect, George Russell also tweeted out after the race that it was like a Travis, like, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was very critical about how the racing incident was handled with the safety car. I know Esther right, is pulling up. Because they basically sacrificed the rules and the regulations for the sake of the last lap and the entertainment of the sport. Correct? Yeah, literally. Yeah. So, oh, it was kind of yeah, funny yeah. when I saw it. I read it in his accent. <laughs> Background. <laughs> he said... This is unacceptable, all caps, four exclamation points. Max is an absolutely fantastic driver who has had an incredible season, and I have nothing but huge respect for him. But what just happened is absolutely unacceptable. I cannot believe what we've just seen. It's worth noting that George has a somewhat vested interest in rooting for Mercedes, considering that he's going to be on their team next year. But this is like a pretty strong statement from who is technically a, right now like an unaffiliated driver on the state of the championship in general. So if these kinds of personalities interest you, then I definitely recommend you can start watching F1 anytime. Um, it's always easy to watch like past races and there's so much media on YouTube, Twitter, 
Um, I'm pretty sure this drama will continue into the next few months until F1 finally returns for testing, and then the racing will begin all over again. The drama will come too, surely. But yeah, this is definitely the perfect moment if you are interested in cars, and even if you're not interested in sports, this is the most opportune moment to kind of get into F1, um, kind of join the scene, like see what's been going on in the past few decades, and just get into the sport. Um, even if you're not into maybe like football, soccer, basketball, um, Formula One kind of reads as almost a reality show. And there's also a really, I wouldn't say really good, but a very entertaining Netflix series called Drive to Survive. If you want to watch that, um, that's been a way a lot of new fans have come to watching the sport. So yeah. I just recommend Formula One. Um, you can be a casual fan or be as invested as us. Depends on your emotional tolerance, but definitely, definitely a sport to watch for the future. Esther is F1's greatest marketing agent right now. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. I mean, certainly I love to, to learn about F1. I, like I said, I, I knew basically nothing about the sport other than, you know, just sold on the prospect of I like driving fast and I also like traveling around the world and whatnot. So I think I'll definitely, uh, yeah, stay tuned and start following the sport as well. Yeah, pretty much same thing as Nikki. I mean, I think it's super cool, especially the storylines. And I feel like it's a sport that has a lot of off the track, I guess you would say, a lot of off the track drama that I feel like everybody, even like your classic sports fan, like Esther said, could get into. So I definitely will check it out. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast once again. Thank you thank for having you. us. Okay, finally, we're going to wrap up this episode, our last one of the semester, with our concluding segment. But before we get to our Grizzlies and Browns check-in, we're quickly going to give our Thursday night football predictions. So we just saw the Chiefs absolutely destroy the Raiders. Um, they're going to be traveling to Los Angeles to play the Chargers. And personally, I think the Chiefs are certainly not playing around anymore. I don't see them having any problems against this terrible Chargers uh, defense, especially I think the Chiefs have gotten their running game and their defense uh, back on track. And so I expect the Chiefs to absolutely blow out the Chargers. I'm going 41-31. I'm, I'm hoping for a shootout on Thursday Night Football. This is a big game for the Chargers, so hopefully they bring it. But ultimately, I just think the Chiefs defense, you know, I, I brought up some numbers earlier. Um, the past five games before today's game, they let up nine points, nine points, 14 points, seven points, and 17 points. That's first in the league uh, by four points, better than the Patriots. Uh, better than the Bills, better than a lot of other teams. And I, you know, personally, I never expected this. So I think the Chiefs have really turned their season around and I expect them to ride this momentum into the playoffs. Yeah, I'm with you, Nikki. I feel like on, on a Sunday at home, I'm taking the Chargers in a close one, but I feel like Thursday night, there's just something about it that feels like the Chiefs aren't playing around. It's a short week for these teams. I feel like the Chiefs are just rolling. They'll use that momentum to kind of carry that into the short week, do what they need to do. I don't know, if, but I hope it's an offensive shootout, you know, just for entertainment. I think it'll be fun to watch the two quarterbacks duel it out, but I feel like on a short week, I could easily see and be lower scoring. I think I have like a 31-21 sort of thing going, or I, I could see the Chargers having 31-27, but I, I see the Chiefs taking care of business, continuing that momentum, and just rolling towards what feels like an inevitable Super Bowl push at this, at this point in the season. So unlike the Chiefs, who, you know, might be bound to make another Super Bowl run, we have the Browns who are sort of middling their, um, we sort of discussed the uh, difficulties that they're going to have in their division, uh, the AFC North, which is always a very tight, very tough division to play in. Um, so we're recording this at 4.19 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. The Browns just finished. You know, they did not blow a uh, comeback to Tyler Huntley, uh, who replaced Lamar Jackson, who, who got a little bit injured. 
But, you know, honestly, while Lamar Jackson was even in this game, the Browns were totally dominating. To give a little bit of context, they had played Baltimore two weeks ago in Baltimore. They, they lost a close one, 16 to 10, had a bye week, and now are playing Baltimore again. It's the first time something like this has happened since 1970. There was a similar situation in 1991 when two teams played each other back to back, but both those teams had bye weeks in between. And so going into this match, I really expected Cleveland to take care of business. Um, Stefanski, he's just a great mind. He knows football very well. And I expected, you know, given the, given the rest, given the time, given the time to game plan against a team you just played against, that they'd be able to pull something together. I think this really did happen. They put together some great drives in the beginning of the game and really just put the game out of reach. Um, it wasn't until Tyler Huntley, apparently they they game plan for Lamar Jackson, but couldn't so stop Tyler Huntley's arms. Um, but, you know, thankfully they pulled through 24-22. It, it was definitely not a convincing win in the end, but um, this was absolutely an enormous game for them. If they had lost this, they would basically be out of the contention for the AFC North. Certainly Stefanski and his team knew that. Um, certainly they knew that coming out of the bye week. And so this was basically the entire season for the Browns. They got the job done. Um, and you know, it's not always gonna be pretty wins in football, but a win is a win. This team is so built for the playoffs that I, you know, if they can make that late season playoff push, I really think that they're going to have a chance. They've struggled with injuries. They struggled with COVID with IR issues just all season long. And so they're finally a bit healthier. They've gotten back Chubb and Hunt. You know, there's a dynamic duo. Baker, he's struggling to even walk on the field, but, you know, apparently he can still play quarterback. So I don't know what's up with that. But as long as he's healthy, I think the offense is, is going to find its groove. I honestly believe that. Um, I think they're, they're sort of in the middle of the of the playoff teams, again, middling defense, sort of middling offense, but I trust the coach and I trust their matchups. Um, I think if they can get a good matchup in the playoffs, especially playing in Cleveland or something like that, they're really going to have a chance. And so, you know, seven and six, four more weeks in the season left. It's, it's make or break for the Browns right now. So definitely stay tuned for the end of their season. Lastly, switching over to the Grizzlies, we've had a little bit of an up and down year. It's been a little bit uh, crazy. Obviously, you've heard me talk about John Morant a lot. You know, I said he's going to make the All-NBA leap. He has been doing that early in the season. But, you know, six or seven games ago, John Morant goes down with an injury. NBA Twitter goes crazy. Instagram goes crazy. Everyone's saying, geez, I hope John Morant doesn't tear his ACL. Uh, repeat of Derrick Rose. And I personally just had an absolutely terrifying night. I mean, I have so much hope for this player and you just don't want to see anyone like that go down with a devastating injury. Sports are really the place where, you know, storylines happen. You know, you follow great players and, you know, how they sort of forge their path. And just to see something like a torn ACL happen to D Rose and, you know, maybe see that replicated with Jaw is just something very terrifying. So I woke up to great news. He got a, uh, a scan. He just sprained something in his knee. And so luckily he's not going to be out for the entire season. But nonetheless, he's left the Grizzlies a little bit uh, shorthanded. And so, you know, what did we expect from this team? You take away Jaw, who really seems to be the glue that holds the team together. And well, what do you expect? The Grizzlies are six and one. The defense has been absolutely spectacular. We've seen young guys like uh, Desmond Bain, who's who's only in his second year. He's looked absolutely phenomenal. You know, normally when someone in their in their rookie year, for example, doesn't have high volume and takes a step forward in that next year, taking more shots, we see their efficiency sort of crumble a little bit. You know, that's what makes Steph Curry so absolutely ridiculous. He takes the most threes in the league, and yet his efficiency is still so high. And so we've seen Desmond Bain almost double his scoring and, and also double his shots from his rookie year, and his efficiency has remained the same, which is just absolutely great to see. It, it's clear that he's a scorer. He's also a defender. He plays hard. He's able to get his own shot, and I think this period is just so important for guys like him and, you know, Dylan Brooks, who's been a little bit hurt, to come back, the Anthony Melton, to come back and really... Sorry, not to come back. De'Anthony Melton to sort of shine and, and show that they are players who can take on um, extra volume when they need to. And 
you know, even if Jaw is not playing well or not performing up expectations in a particular game or a particular playoff series, these guys are going to be able to step it up. And so, you know, I really just absolutely love this. You know, we've talked about Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, on the pa- on the podcast quite a bit. We see him, you know, continuing his stellar defense and also taking more shots. We've definitely seen Jaron Jackson Jr. pick up some of the slack um, in John Morant's absence. We've seen him taking more threes. He's still that stellar de- uh, defensive presence. And so, you know, ultimately, I think the Grizzlies, with Jaw out, their defense has clearly improved. And so... I just think this is so great to see. Um, now, zooming out a little bit, it's, you know, obviously the championship is always a possibility, but, you know, I, I really don't see this as being their window. I think they're still two or three years away. You know, we, we saw them trade away Valanchunas. We think that they're going to be two or three years out waiting for that uh, development. Hopefully, Zaire Williams, who they traded up to get in the, in the draft, will take another step next year. But, you know, ultimately, they're gaining great experience. And yeah, ultimately, I'm just unbelievably excited to see where this team's going to go. I can't wait for Ja Morant to get back. I think this is such an interesting experiment for them because normally, obviously, Ja is the focal point of the team. You're never going to consider trading him uh, for anyone ever. And so, you know, can this team function without Ja? And I think this period is absolutely showing that they can. And in some ways, they're even better. And so I think now the test is going to be plugging Ja back into the system. You know, we don't want him to take too much volume away from these other scores. Um, don't want to get them out of their rhythm. But at the same time, you know, I think the big question for them is going to be, can Ja become an all-NBA level defender? I mean, that guy is great. He's he's very smart. He's very athletic. And so now it's just sort of going to be a question of taking calculated risks, taking those steals. Um you know, I, I think with their the the brains on this team and with Taylor Jenkin leading them, I think um, it's a very, very promising young group. And so this is just a great win streak for the Grizzlies. And it's, you know, really great to see for me, especially. Uh, I'm super amped on this group. And I think, you know, when John Morant comes back, we're just going to see the potential for this team and the ceiling go even higher than we expected at the beginning of the season. And, you know, I think it's a little bit early to say that they're championship contenders or anything like that. But certainly with the West and, and how everyone's underperforming, you know, we see injuries and COVID issues. The Grizzlies could easily be one of the top four or five teams in the West. And, you know, once you get into a, a playoff series, we can see a guy like John Morant take that leap. Um, you know, other guys just take over the series. And so with this grit and grind type of uh, mentality that the Grizzlies have, you know, defense first, I think they're going to be a tough playoff out no matter what. And we're we're definitely going to see them there. So, you know, it's good on both fronts. Obviously, the Browns a little bit uh, disappointing sometimes, but, you know, got a big win when they needed to. And, you know, I'm super excited for the rest of these seasons. So, Quaker Nation, that is it for this semester. I've had an absolutely amazing time with my friend Joey Pyatt, but we are going to be back next semester bigger and better than ever. And so, just take care in the meantime. This episode was recorded on Sunday afternoon, December 12th of 2021.